Hi, um, good evening everybody. Uh, I am Dan Perrins. I'm the director of the, L of the uh, Gender Institute here at the LSE. And I'd like to welcome you all very, strong, very warmly to our first public lecture this year in our series on gendering the humanities and social sciences. Uh, tonight's speaker is Wendy Siegel, who is Professor of Gender and Family Studies in the Gender Institute here at the LSE. Um, and just to say a word about the format of tonight's event, um, first of all, I will say a few words about Professor Siegel. Uh, then she will speak to 40, 50 minutes, Wendy? Yeah, about that. Uh, and then we will have a Q&A session, after which we, will, um, we are all invited to a reception on the fourth floor of this building in the uh, restaurant there. Um, so can I ask you to turn your mobile phones to silent? And if you would like to tweet, the ref is there on the board, uh, hashtag LSE Gender Talks. Um, so let me now introduce uh, Professor Wendy Siegel. Um, thank you for that one. I think it's gone <laughs> now. Thank you. Um, Wendy has worked on a variety of issues uh, related to families, family policy in both historical and contemporary contexts. Uh, she focuses in particular on processes of family formation and how changing and less traditional family structures and living arrangements impact on health, education, and material well-being of family members and especially uh, of children. She is also interested in issues surrounding men's unpaid work uh, and care. Uh, and Wendy has published in a variety of academic journals, including Demography, Journal of Marriage and the Family, Studies in Family Planning, Population Studies, European Social Policy, Feminist Economics, and the Population and Development Review, to name just a few. And what I particularly like about Wendy's work is the way that she always includes a comparative and transnational element but most especially because she asks questions often left um, unconsidered by other writers, especially within demography. For example, um, there is work by Gary Becker, who's a Nobel Prize winner uh, for his work on family economics, that suggests that traditional gender divisions of labor stabilize marriage. Uh, and this work is supported by correlations between women's unpaid work and divorce, uh, sorry, between women's paid employment and divorce. So if women go out to work, the divorce rate they find to be higher. Uh, and uh, Wendy questions this, this kind of work. And she takes a different approach by focusing instead on the role of men and the relationship between divorce rates and men's participation in unpaid care. And what, which should, if the traditional model worked, that should op operate so as to also uh, destabilize marriage. But in fact, it doesn't. In fact, the opposite occurs. In other words, if, or there is more evidence to suggest that the opposite is more likely. So that if men participate in unpaid care work, then the, the marriage is actually more stable. Um, and this finding then highlights the importance of focusing on uh, gender relations on men and masculinity when thinking about the family rather than just focusing on women alone. Um, it also raises the question of whether 
demographers have become too reliant on simplistic economic models and methods rather than giving uh, attention to wider range of critical and theoretical perspectives. And it's this issue that she'll be speaking on tonight, and that is why demographers need new theories. Uh, so would you please welcome uh, Professor Wendy Siegel. Um, I'm going to start by saying um, thank you for having me, and um, also thank you all for coming. Um, I'm not sure how do I press what? That one, yay. Okay. Um, I was talking to a friend the other night, and uh, she gently reminded me that um, you need to think a little bit about drawing in an audience, and she started laughing and said, you must have been trying to discourage people from coming with a title like that. And we spent some time talking about what um, the title should have been if I had been a bit market savvy. I don't think that was my calling in life. We decided that um, it should probably have been something like disciplining the wild science or, um, you know, sex, death, and gender. Uh, so um, thank you for being patient with the title, and um, thank you for... Uh, showing some interest in demography, which um, I was also going to have my first slide say something like, demography is fascinating. Uh, but I was afraid that the person I would be quoting would be here and would turn red. Uh, I had a PhD student who did a brilliant project, and she spent her entire PhD telling me that uh, she was not a demographer and that she didn't want to be a demographer and that she didn't like demography. And I just got her to go to a conference at the beginning of September, and it was just absolutely amazing when she turned to me and said, you know, demography is really fascinating. <laughs> I just, well, what do you know? Um, but uh, a lot of people don't know what demography is, and actually a lot of people that do demography don't know what it is. So I thought I would start by telling you what demography is, at least what other people say it is. Um, it's an academic discipline that actually was born outside of or on the margins of academia. I would say in Britain it was probably born on the margins of academia. The Population Investigation Committee, uh, which is still here at LSE, was set up here. Uh, it was an independent research group, but it was part of LSE. In a lot of other places it was set up uh, within statistical offices. Uh, and that was why it was referred to uh, by Alfred Sauvé as uh, the wild science. Uh, if you ever went to a demography conference, you'd know how funny the word wild is attached to it. But uh, it, it's, it's wild because it grew outside of academia. Uh, but because it grew outside of academia, that means that it really wasn't terribly theoretical, uh, which is why if you look at one of the demography textbooks uh, from Newell, you'll see that it is a set of techniques by which data collected in censuses, surveys, and vital registration systems about age, sex, births, deaths, migrations, marriages, and so on, are described, summarized, and manipulated. Uh, can see why people are so keen to identify with demography, huh? Um, demography turned into uh, two camps, formal demography and social demography. And social demography is what I do, and it's what a lot of people who would call themselves demographers do. It's the multi- or interdisciplinary study of fertility, mortality, and migration. Um, that pretty much touches on a lot of aspects of our lives. Um, it includes an examination of the relationship between demographic phenomena and social, economic, and political phenomena. 
So it pretty much covers a lot of really political topics. It covers a lot of things that are important to us. It's all about the social. Uh, but at the same time, it's sort of turned into a discipline that has a very weird atheoretical history, a very particular self-concept, and a very particular uh, attachment to mathematics. And um, as Susan Greenall wrote in 1995, demography is mathematics and modernization, modernization being the only theory in demography. Um, I thought I would start by giving you a little bit more of a, a prehistory of demography before it kind of got settled in academia in the 1930s was really when it started to get established in the US and in the UK as an academic discipline. Most people would say that the first demographic publication ever, which we celebrated a few years ago, um, was the Bills of Mortality. Uh, it was published in 1662 and it was an assessment of data on, on deaths. It went through the common causes of death. It gave information on sex differences in death. We found out that men died more. Uh, it went through seasonal variation in death rates. It looked at disease spikes. And it was one of the first um, times anybody used a life table, which is one of the things demographers use. It, really, I think, is important because it shows something that I think demographers have contributed a lot. They've showed the importance of actually having data and being able to construct a picture of the world. What um, John Grant did was he actually showed that it was really good to monitor how diseases hit, and he was trying to contribute to the construction of some kind of data record so that you could trace, um, so that you could actually trace predict and respond to uh, disease and death. Unfortunately, the database didn't happen, but we still have the bills of mortality to point to as kind of our origins, and then you always get to say, you know, we're a really old and a really young discipline at the same time. Um, somebody who's having a birthday this next year is Thomas Malthus, somebody you probably are more likely to have heard of. Um, he's one of the first people who linked population growth with the economy. Um, and, you know, he wrote, the power of the population is so superior to the power of the earth to produce substance for man that premature death must in some shape or other visit the human race. And they call economics the dismal science. Uh, one of the things I like about Malthus, though, is he actually wrote down his theory. You can look at what he said. He said that food production grew at a geometric rate and population grew at an exponential rate. You can look at his assumptions, you can engage with them, you can test them, you can decide that he was wrong. I think that's really important for some of the things I'm going to show you in a second. Um, part of what I think is very interesting about the contribution of Grant and sort of the origins of demography in the 20th century in statistical offices is that it really was all about getting data, using administrative data, and uh, basically trying to construct a portrait of the population. And a lot of the, a lot of the uh, things that have been written about the history of demography have been very focused on the US. The US is kind of um, a very powerful figure in the history of demography, but it actually, in its origins, had very different people in place and very different levels of interest in being activists, I think. The, um, 
the origins of, of demography in the UK, I think, were often really about documenting and measuring. And John Hainel actually even said that he didn't think demographers should consider forecasting. And if they dared to forecast, they certainly shouldn't do it without analysis. On the U.S. side, a lot of people said, a lot of people were activists. And the story of demography in the U.S., which tends to occlude pretty much the rest of the world, um, was actually trying to turn activism into science and, as some people have said, to turn critical theories into crackpots. Um, but what happened in the context of British demography is that um, once you start actually constructing these statistics and these portraits, people want to know what happens. So demographers were like, I don't really want to get involved in theory. I want to describe the world. I want to measure things. And when people were talking about working with data, they were always talking about looking backwards because you can't look forwards because we don't know what's going to happen. And if we do try and predict forwards, we should only predict as far forwards as we've looked back. Um, but you put those tools in place, right? And um, Enid Charles said at a time when fertility was very low in Britain, and sometimes when you see family demography or issues of the family presented which start um, during the baby boom, you don't realize that we actually had low fertility at other times in the past. Um, and in a period of low fertility in Britain, Enid Charles, who was very interested in setting up um, a generous welfare state to support parenthood, kind of like the Swedish one, um, put together several publications, and she said, oh, I'm going to take this wonderful data, and I'm going to terrorize you with what the world is going to look like in the future. Fertility is low, and by 2000, um, I'll give you two scientific-looking estimates of what the population of Britain is going to look like. It will either be 17.5 million or 28.5 million. Um, does anybody want to venture a guess of what the population was in 2000 or 2001? I actually looked at the... Ah, that was 2011, actually. <laughs> it was 52 for England and Wales. Yeah. Um, so this was kind of embarrassing. Um, and I think it was kind of something that focused people's attention on the fact that if you are going to try and predict in the future, you kind of have to figure out what's going to happen, and you kind of probably need to think a little bit about theory. Uh, but sometimes people's minds are hard to change. Um, and John Hobcraft, in 1996, described demography as a profession which still spends too little time trying to explain and understand rather than describe and quantify. It's been a battle since that time between those two camps that really just want to construct a picture of the world and those that think that's not sufficient and, and think it needs to be explained. Um, but when I show you about some of the uh, attempts people did make to explain, you might understand a bit more why. Um, some people say demography really only has one theory, and that's kind of what uh, Susan Greenall was pointing to in her mathematics and modernization thing. Uh, does anybody know what that theory is? Sorry, I'm turning into teacher mode, but you're a small group. I can talk to you. No? Well, what is the modernization attached to? Sorry? Yes, the first demographic transition. And if you 
look on the web, you will see like 110 pictures that look like this. The thing that I find really interesting about this picture is that this is often presented as a theory. But there isn't actually any theory here. It's a phenomenon. And that kind of worries me, because if you aren't making your ideas and assumptions explicit, you can pretty much attach any story which is consistent to that, and people kind of have to assume you're right. And I often give my students readings about the first demographic transition. I ask them what a theory is, and then I ask them what the first demographic transition theory is, and they say uh, birth rates fall after death rates have fallen first. That, that's a phenomenon. That's a generalization. It's happened in a lot of places. That isn't a theory. Um, but at the same time, I also think that a lot of people who do demography don't really think very long and hard about what theories are. Um, so I, I guess I can kind of forgive them for that. I, I was just... <laughs> I was just in Berlin with a friend of mine, and we were so intent on talking about the difference between paradigms, theories, conceptual frameworks, and concepts that we went right through Berlin and realized we were a half hour outside of it. <laughs> so um, I dug out what I could find um, as a description of what the first demographic transition as a theory was, and according to Kirk, stripped to its essentials, not that there's much to strip, um, it states that societies that experience modernization progress from pre-modern regime of high fertility and high mortality uh, to a postmodern one in which both are low. The term modernization is not defined, nor does it include the crucial questions about causation that form much of the subject of modern demographic literature. So it's modernization. Um, can you see why people say demography is short on theory but rich in quantification? <laughs> um, Susan Greenall, writing in 1995, said non-demographers dipping into the demographic literature for the first time are often struck by the pervasiveness of modernization theory, a perspective that was heavily criticized and abandoned by much of mainstream social science two decades ago. My response when I first read that was, where did they find it? Um, but it's important to actually unearth it. It was something that was put together by Frank Notstein, at least the first version of demographic transition theory. And it was something that was really sold to post-World War II social planners. Um, and that's kind of what U.S. demography did, because it kind of married this political activism with what they wanted to represent as science. So talking to social planners after World War II, Notstein was able to sort of say, if you want to go in and make the world better, you have to modernize all of these poor, unfortunate places. And lo and behold, you're all worried about the population growing so fast, which it was at the time. Uh, fertility will decline. Uh, you might have seen it kind of reflected in some development slogans uh, in the past where people said development is the best contraceptive. There's a problem with the way this theory was kind of used and, and implicitly used, um, and some of the effects of the implicit usage of modernization theory had some pretty explicit um, and unfortunate implications. 
the first demographic transition theory as this modernization theory is um, an evolutionary and determinist view of societal development built around a whole series of unstated assumptions. Uh, this is only a few of them. That all countries follow a unilinear predetermined path. That actually is not atypical. Some of the theories of welfare state development seem to think that everybody was on the same path and eventually we'd all look like Sweden. Uh, the unique social and political histories of individual societies have limited roles in reproductive change um, because everybody's just eventually going to follow the path and westernize and be happy and wonderful like us. Uh, but that wonderful like us um, kind of says that fertility transition is caused by and in turn causes further westernization, which is inevitable and desirable, which then implies that the developed, and I should have, I did put that in quotes good, the developed world is superior. Um, Susan Green, I'll put it better than I possibly could. She said it legitimizes a political project of reproductive westernization, making the demographic other more like us. It remains silent about the historically created relations of unequal power between first world and third that permit this project to go forward. Reflexivity about the politics of demographic praxis is notably lacking in the field. Um, it also means that... Uh, because of limited data and because of this mindset, demographers did some things which are pretty unfortunate and not very intelligent. Um, and one of the most important ones is something that Arlen Thornton calls reading history sideways. And I've always said one of the benefits of adopting more feminist and critical perspectives is that uh, Arlen would have come across some literature that would have helped inform his hypothesis much quicker. Um, but he says implicit in the developmental paradigm that demographers have used... Um, was the assumption that you could read history sideways. If everybody's on the same path and everybody's going to look the same, and we have limited data on the history of what our society looks like, we can just look to poorer societies and see our past. So let's just look at so-called primitive societies in other parts of the world, and then we'll get a picture of what we looked like. That's probably self-evidently and patently wrong. What also is wrong is that um, in the Cold War period, something happened to first demographic transition theory, which Susan Greenall calls theory adaptation. And instead of actually having this modernization theory where modernization led to low fertility, um, there was a series of backpedaling and a series of... Um, slights of hand that I think in other periods would have really attracted a lot more academic critique, and the two variables were reversed. We need to actually reduce fertility in order to get economic growth. And without good theory, without clear theory, um, that was much more easy to do. As a consequence, the demographers developed a really large and really influential contingent of people that um, got very close to the population control movement, particularly in the United States. And they produced work which um, often really legitimated what politicians and activists wanted to see happen, and they packaged it as science. 
one of the wonderful things that happened was there was a student movement um, that grew up in response to that. Um, and it reminds me a lot of the Rethinking Economics group in, in the UK at the moment. And they really took issue with the way demography was going. They took issue with theory. They said, we want something different. Um, but they were actually really effectively silenced. They produced a journal for a few years that was effectively shut down. They tried to organize um, sessions at conferences, and I'm just very hopeful that that isn't what's going to happen with the Rethinking Economics group because I think there's so many parallels there, and uh, I'd like to see that kind of reaction to a discipline from people who are going to take responsibility for it to be a bit more successful. But we, we actually have one more theory, possibly, because people actually um, debate whether this is a theory. But we have the second demographic transition theory, which is slightly more theoretical. And it's a theory about um, what's happened in the richer parts of the world, the, the OECD countries in Europe. Um, and the second demographic transition looks at... Um, Structural constraints, prolonged education, career building time, draws on Maslow's hierarchy of needs and says that people, once they get rich, want self-actualization. He talks about the gender revolution, um, access to contraception, and says that together they create incentives for postponement and recuperation, but in the end what we get is sustained sub-replacement fertility, a multitude of living arrangements other than marriage, the disconnection between marriage and procreation, and no stationary population. Um, and if it weren't for immigration, uh, the decline in population size would have started in many European countries already. A lot of people say this isn't a theory, um, that it is particular to Europe. What worries me is that it seems to have that same kind of narrative of progress attached to it that um, you see in the first demographic transition theory. But the reason I wanted to put this up is this is kind of the political issue that demographers are attached to now. With first demographic transition, we had the U.S. really politically active. We've now got low fertility, and we've got loads of European demographers suddenly talking to politicians. Um, now, it's really hard to present an entire field and an entire discipline in broad brush strokes and, and represent it fairly. And there were a lot of people, and you'll see, you've seen I've quoted some of them, who were saying, we need to do this differently, we need to think differently. Um, but they haven't really made huge inroads on to, into the discipline. And I think there's a number of reasons for that, and I've spent some time trying to think about it. And I've come up with a few ideas that uh, perhaps it's to do with the fact that a lot of the uh, criticisms are about what already happened. I think perhaps what we need to do is engage with what people are doing now. And that's kind of been my mission. In order to engage with what we're doing now, I'm going to quickly show you what people are doing now. Um, I'm going to go back to when I was a PhD student. Um, just as I was starting my PhD, um, Eileen Crimmins was, uh, produced an article which was surveying three decades of research in the journal Demography, which is kind of the top demography journal in the US. And she is 
watching how research has changed and notes we've moved from descriptive methods and data to analysis that is based largely on the application of causal models. The availability of certain types of data and the power to easily apply complex statistical techniques have encouraged the development of methods appropriate to this emphasis on causal models. She talks about entering the era of the independent variable. The rapid increase in the number of studies making use of multivariate regression techniques with a trend towards increasingly long lists of control variables. Um, this latter development um, meant that the empirical models that showed up in demography papers looked very different than the kind of work demographers had done in the past. Uh, demographers in the past had often done really creative things trying to describe the population, and what happened was that the models that were showing up in demography started to look a lot like the reduced form models that I was seeing as a graduate student in economics. Um, at, when I was a graduate student in economics, there was a kind of quieter revolt amongst students about theory. Um, we got fed up with theory, and uh, one strategy to deal with theory was to move to these reduced form models. Economics has very rigid models which link how they see the world works to the statistics that the statistical models that they estimate. And a lot of people sort of skipped over the theory and went straight to the model. And that's kind of the approach that filtered into demography. Um, and to be honest, that's why I moved into demography. It was my way out of these restrictive models that I got so impatient with. On reflection, uh, what I got impatient with really was that people put up these models that had loads and loads of restrictions made clear what the restrictions were in the theory section and then pretended like they didn't exist when they interpreted the model. But I wasn't quite quick enough to figure that out. And um, I wasn't quite clever enough to realize the importance of something my PhD supervisor told me, which was whether or not you write the theory, it's there anyhow. Um, so what happened in demography was methods and methodological preoccupations of economics gained precedence. That means that we got really concerned about unobserved heterogeneity. We got really concerned about self-selection and reverse causality. Um, these things mask the true and causal effect, which was what we really, really need to identify. Um, and causality means different things in different disciplines. In economics, basically, causality means what you would get if it was a randomized control trial. Uh, I'm not sure that it always makes a whole lot of sense to be trying to construct a randomized control trial in social stuff. I understand a randomized control trial if you want to look at the link between sugary drinks and obesity, um, but I struggle to figure out what the causal effect of cohabitation on child asthma is. And yet I read it. Um, I don't think that issues of unobserved heterogeneity, self-selection, and reverse causality are unimportant issues. In fact, I think if they had come to the attention of demographers sooner, it may have actually provided a critical insight into what Notstein was doing when he suddenly switched the two variables around. Um, however, that critique of Notstein would not in and of itself have challenged the simplistic treatment of political economy and the importance of context that was being ignored in those models, so it would have helped, but I don't think it would have solved the problem. Um, but I have to admit, issues of unobserved heterogeneity and selection and reverse causality have influenced my research, and I, I hope in a good way. Um, I did some work on marriage promotion in the US, 
And if you don't think about these issues, you can, like Rector, um, I can't believe he wrote this in 2012, um, child poverty is an ongoing national concern, but few are aware of its principal cause, the absence of married fathers in the home. Um, according to the U.S. Census, the poverty rate for single parents with children in the United States was 37.1%. The rate for married couples with children was 68 Being raised in a married family reduces a child's probability of living in poverty by 82%. Um, I'm glad you laughed. Uh, I did a study in, uh, gosh, 2001 uh, using data that interviewed unmarried parents right after birth, and I had information on how much money the mother earned, and I had how much money on how her unmarried partner earned, and I pretended to get them together and just looked at how much they would earn if they were together in a household. Um, I also took their hourly wages, and I assumed different scenarios of employment, and I compared them to another sample of couples that were actually married. And most of that 82% gap is due to the fact that people who um, have unmarried children in the United States tend to be poor, younger, have lower education. Uh, They ain't going to look like the married people if you get them married. Uh, And this kind of analysis helps you do that. It's not unhelpful. you know, I, I did other work. People looked at correlational evidence between breastfeeding and child mortality in India and had the audacity to suggest that we should change those rates because they, we should change our, our policies on breastfeeding uh, duration because they found that people who breastfed had sicker children. And I said, well, come on. People are in India telling people how great breastfeeding is. If your kid is sick, you're going to keep breastfeeding them. If you don't understand that, you know, you can't really set this policy and, and change things in a way that could potentially harm people. You need more evidence than that. Um, and I've also done work on early parenthood in the U.S., um, looking at, at similar things. <clears throat> One other consequence of this importation of, of economic methods in this obsession with causality is that we've got really, really obsessed with looking at this one particular variable that we're interested in and identifying the causal relationship. Let's strip out all that stuff we don't want. That alone is sometimes questionable. But it also means from a social perspective, what we end up getting is evidence on whether there is a significant effect. It doesn't tell us anything about why. And what we're left with is our own story of why, which we can then put forward without a whole lot of evidence, or a bunch of literature, which has happened in a lot of, for a lot of research topics, which is you know, a ream of papers that tell you whether an effect is significant or not, often with contradictory signs, which people don't even notice, and without much use, unless, for example, with parental divorce, you want to make divorce more difficult. Um, so the methods that we adopted and imported and started using, sometimes in very good ways, didn't invite the development of a lot of theory. Um, Moreover, when economic methods came in, they came in and demographers adopted a fairly weak and limited um, approach to the economic theory that was attached to the models they were estimating. They adopted that reduced form approach. The other thing that happened, which I am 
I get particularly cross about is that this embrace of causality um, meant that academic pursuits which do not find causes are suddenly labeled just descriptive. That's what demographers always did well. They describe things really well. Descriptive is not substandard, but I think that's been um, taken on board in a lot of ways which I find really unhelpful. And I'm just really glad that it wasn't, oh dear, what did I do? There we go. Ah. Those of you that know me would not be surprised because I'm such a Luddite. But it's really good that um, this didn't happen when Hainel was writing a wonderful descriptive portrait of marriage and family systems in Northwest Europe, which basically was sufficient evidence to really debunk that idea of reading history sideways. Um, or when the Cambridge group of his, uh, when the Cambridge group were reconstructing. Uh, parish records and actually giving us a wonderful portrait of what historical families looked like. Uh, just description is actually not lack of analysis, and it's certainly not substandard. And I think one of the really sad things is that some demographers have taken that idea on board. What we were left with was a demography that's long on methods and short on theory, one that was unwilling to accept and use feminist or other critical theoretical approaches, uh, like economics, uh, that attempts to reduce social life to a series of measurable variables and without a whole lot of self-reflection, and one which is highly invested in deflecting critical theories, including feminism, that highlight the political nature of science precisely because its theories, research questions, and applications are so very political. A lot of people, as I said, did resist this trend, a lot of people have argued that demography needs to adopt new theories, that it needs to embrace new perspectives, um, but that hasn't had a huge impact on the field. And I kind of thought maybe one of the reasons, I, I alluded to this before, is that I can talk to you about Nostein, I can talk to you about the Cold War, it's really unfortunate. Um, I didn't get into eugenics, that's equally bad. Uh, but it doesn't really motivate people to tell them that things were bad in the past. So I thought, well, maybe one way to actually kind of talk to demographers was to latch on to the thing that demographers are talking about politically now. The things demographers are hugely engaged with, particularly in Europe. Um, and fertility and family policy in Europe is a big business. Not quite as big as, family, as uh, population control and family planning was, but uh, it's something that attracts the interest of a lot of people. Um, and if you look at the motivation of a lot of papers that demographers produce, um, it's basically looking at the fact that the total fertility rate in, um, in a lot of European countries fell from above to below replacement, and that's really bad because we now have the threat of aging populations rather than the threat of the population bomb. Um, and that threatens the sustainability of our generous welfare state models. And in a European Union that embraces the open method of coordination, let's figure out what policies we can just drop in and make everything better. And often implicit in a lot of these approaches, which actually harks back to the 1930s and Edith Charles, um, is should the Nordic model be a blueprint for reform? Should we just encourage people to adopt all these wonderful policies that Sweden has um, in order to address this demographic issue. I argue that if that's the question you want to engage with, um, okay, 
but you're not answering it particularly well because you actually have adopted methods that don't help you do it, and you're not doing it particularly well because it's not allowing you to actually see um, the limits of what you're doing because you haven't adopted critical theoretical perspectives. Uh, first of all, demographers have not actually adopted economic theory. They adopted reduced form economic models. They do, however, implicitly have certain models in the theoretical sections of their papers. Um, and if they paid more attention to economic theory, they would probably notice a lot of inconsistencies between their theoretical and empirical models and some inconsistencies between the evidence they produce and the interpretation. Um, the very simple economic model, the kind of model that irritated me, um, would really only um, assume that people get um, a certain benefit if they have children and everybody gets the same benefit, and it only affects their, assumption, their consumption, so it's a cash transfer. People are forward-looking, and they decide whether or not to have a kid, and they have extra money if they have a kid, and it's a really simple kind of cost-benefit. But that's not how family policies work. They're really detailed, they rely on your allocation of time. They rely on how much work you do. Um, they do affect your consumption. But you actually end up having a huge range of choices with a lot of family policies. So it's not have a kid or not. It's have a kid and work part-time. Have a kid and work full-time. And the, your entitlement to benefits. And when you have a kid, because you have to build up entitlements in order to get maternity leave in some countries. So the average benefit if you look at data, is nothing that anybody receives. So it doesn't actually represent this simple economic model, which then gets down to the reduced form that gets estimated. So people estimate a lot of models um, which are very difficult to interpret. The very simple models, empirically tractable, but it bears no resemblance to the world or the way demographers describe the world when they write their papers. Um, but we have to get at the causal effect of policy because we have to be able to tell people whether if they adopt a policy, they'll be better off. Um, and there's another option. You can model diversity and difference, but that's hard and it's not tractable. Or you can model out diversity and difference, and there's econometric techniques that just try and wipe everything out. And basically the idea behind it is you make comparisons which are as similar as possible. So what you do is you make a very, very narrow comparison. One example which everybody points to and says, oh, the gold standard study which shows a causal effect of fertility, of fertility responding to policy is something called the speed premium in Sweden. There was a policy that was implemented that basically said you, if you had children very close together, you'd get extra benefits. And lo and behold, people had children close together. And people said, oh, causal effect, hooray, hooray. You know, we know what to do. But the problem is um, the very logic that led you to make those very narrow comparisons, all those things that might be confounding factors, suddenly are ignored and people say policy can affect fertility. If you insert a Swedish policy into a very different context, you're probably not going to get Swedish-like results. So we found basically that in Sweden, with a particular history, with a particular policy context, we have a causal effect. 
Maybe Swedish people are happy to hear about that, but that actually doesn't tell you anything about the question in the introduction, which is should the Nordic model be a blueprint for reform? Um, it doesn't tell you how to extrapolate to other people in different contexts. So by not paying attention to economic theory, by not paying attention to context, by not actually using the methods and theories that they have to hand carefully, I don't think demographers are doing a good job at this. But I also think there's a lot of reasons that what they're doing could be improved by um, adopting a more th uh, other theoretical methods. Paying attention to economic theory would help you deal with the alignment of the theoretical model and um, the, uh, the empirical model. But I think there's still issues to do with um, how you come up with the motivation um, and how you interpret the evidence. And that's why I think critical perspectives are, are really important. Um, I think an openness to new theoretical perspectives would really do a lot to direct attention towards the wider social and economic context. Um, I think it's just amazing how one of the things that happened when Notstein turned turned the first demographic transition theory around and said it's not modernization which will reduce fertility but let's reduce fertility and then you'll get development was that we went actually from looking at something that was a social system to something that was all about controlling what people do and that contributed to actually losing sight of a lot of the contextual variables because we suddenly were just dealing with atomistic people that we wanted to accept contraception so that they would have less babies and then the world would be better. Um, at the same time, as we were adopting all these economic models, all these wonderful critical perspectives were, were floating around universities and people were just stuck in population centers, not talking to them or accepting them. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's crazy to model people as atomistic. A dynamic gender analysis says that institutions such as family states and markets are interconnected sites rather than separate spheres or even a discrete system. You can't do this. Um, it, it makes no sense from a lot of other theoretical approaches. I should have said this is Myra Max Ferry uh, writing in 2010 on the state of research on families. Um, but if we paid more attention to some of these perspectives, we probably would have a lot more prompting to pay more attention to context. An openness to uh, new theoretical perspectives for demographers would encourage self-reflection and decisions regarding things like measurement, categorization, the interpretation of findings, and indeed the question itself. Um, one of the key contributions I find from some feminist perspectives is a problematization of categories themselves, a recognition that categories are socially defined um, and that the act of categorization is an act of power and exclusion. We use variables and categorical variables to do a lot of work for us in empirical models but don't always pay attention to what the content of those variables are. Um, and I think in terms of how you specify models, how you use data, and how you interpret variables, that's actually really important and it would be a useful, um, a useful insight for, for demographers to adopt. It's also important, I think, particularly because demography, but 
academia in general is often um, work that is done from a privileged position and a privileged perspective. I think the interpretation of findings often um, needs to be challenged. Adrian Rich um, talked about white solipsism, um, the tendency to think, imagine, and speak as if whiteness defined the world. Um, it's, it's basically ignoring the perspectives of other people, ignoring the experiences of other people. And I think from the, and I think from the perspective of demography, you could extend that to class, and you, should, you could certainly extend it to geopolitical positioning. And paying attention to things like white solipsism, paying attention to the fact that people are in different contexts and have different experiences is something that, unfortunately, uh, the more scientific of the social sciences haven't adopted. And I think if we did, we'd have much richer work. Uh, I, I need to finish soon, but I just wanted to plug my, one of my former PhD students um, did a wonderful study um, a long time ago, and I was reminded of it during a seminar earlier last week. We have all these wonderful demographic and health surveys in, um, that are collected in, in different countries of the world, and one of the questions that gets asked, and it's been replicated in other surveys, is if you went back to before you had children and, and you thought about how you wanted to live your life, what would be the ideal number of children that you would have? And people have used that to argue that we need to um, go in and offer people more family planning. But um, when she went and talked to people about how they interpreted that question, she found out something really interesting. Uh, some people, when they were answering that question, were saying to themselves, well, I want to die with a certain number of children and mortality is really high, so they reported the number of births they wanted to have. Another portion of the people that were being interviewed reported the number of uh, children that they wanted to have at the end. So the variable itself actually was two different answers. And people had been using it for 30 years and interpreting it from the perspective of a low fertility country. That's the kind of thing that happens when you don't actually pay attention to um, the fact that your view of the world might not be others. Fortunately, with demographic surveys, and demographers are very involved with the collection of data, we're doing a lot more cognitive interviewing with people and trying to get a sense of how they see the world. But I, I think it's kind of late now. Um, and I think also, you know, if we had these critical theoretical perspectives, we might even look at that question and go, what? Um, Gerda Nair, who is in a demography center that I'm on the advisory board for, but who would not really identify as a demographer, although not quite as stridently as Joanna used to, um, was in a meeting in 2011 and had to remind people that it's demographers, politicians, the media, or other groups of people or public institutions who produce the perception that fertility levels are too low or too high or normal. Likewise, it is they who construct the social, economic, and political consequences of fertility levels by transforming demographic measures into ostensibly negative outcomes for the future. That she even had to say that, I think, shows how important it is that we need to possibly rethink how we do things. All of this, says we, all of this I think, highlights the need to 
be very careful about the questions we ask, to extrapolate cautiously, to think about the questions that we set with great care. Um, I, I read something earlier in the week that, that was pointing out that uh, it, the explanations and the theories and the associated methodologies that we use um, don't just reflect reality, they actually construct a certain reality. And I think that's the other lesson that I'd really like to drive home to demographers. Often the way we represent the world by repeating it over and over influences the way people themselves think about it. It it isn't even um, just a bunch of people sitting in an ivory tower. I think we've really got to pay attention to uh, what we do in the world. And Claire Claire got a gift from students um, several years ago, which you'll see in the Gender Institute um, if you go there, and it says theory saves lives. Um, I, I'd kind of flip that around and say lack of theory loses lives, and I'd like to avoid that. Okay. Thank you very much, Wendy. Okay. So um, we now have some time for questions, comments uh, on the lecture. Would anyone like to begin? Uh, we have a question over there. I'll take these two questions to begin with. Um, and please wait for the microphone to come, and please, if you would, say who you are. My name is Paul Hudson. As they say in crime reports, I'm no longer a fixed academic abode. <laughs> I'm also on a zero-hours contract, um, looking after my seven-year-old granddaughter, babysitting, fetching her and taking her to school. I don't get any remuneration from her two-pound-a-week body money either, but I get psychic benefits from this. The question I wanted to um, raise, and I wasn't quite sure where you stood, you were uh, slating economists. I think you can slate a lot of them, but I I think you should uh, distinguish most economists from the post-Keynesian group because they stress uncertainty and they also stress a pluralistic approach. One of the leading economists in that uh, group is Sue Himmelwhite of the Open University. She's done an awful lot of work on that, and she's part of the post-Keynesian study group. I think the reason for your apparent um, antagonism to uh, most economists is because you happen to be here working in a high temple to neoclassical economics. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the point I want to come to here, and I'm not quite um, sure that I understood, you seem to be... Um, on the one hand, um, somewhat uh, um, favouring uses of a causal approach and, on the other hand, antagonistic and being a little bit annoyed with um, mere description. But to me, description would seem little more than just stamp collecting. I think you've got to go further than that and formulate a causal theory. Otherwise, and you need the causal theory to make predictions, and you, only, you need to make the predictions in order to test, I'm speaking as a preparer, you might have guessed, to falsify whether the theories are true. And I'm not quite sure where you stand on that term, position. I don't mean to sound offensive, but I'm just actually unclear. Thank you, thank you very much. And the question over here? Um, it's just along there. Thank you. Thank you. I was wondering um, if you could make a comment on, um, I think you were talking about modeling difference and diversity. I was wondering if um, the theory of like utility quantifying happiness, if that had any impact on, on those theories. 
coming from a very ignorant perspective, sorry. Okay, would you like to address those? Um, I, I, I'm sorry if I sounded like I was slating. Um, what I was trying to do was say that I think economics has made a contribution. Uh, what I was trying to say is that I guess it isn't so much the incorporation of an economic perspective in demography that worries me, but its predominance. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to pretend that I don't have some problems with economics. I, I, I have questions about how things are done. But my problem is, uh, frankly, I, I would be just as concerned with the rise of and predominance of any particular discipline kind of taking over. I, I believe in interdisciplinarity. Um, I think... Um, but I, I think I, I, I know Sue Himmelwhite well. I, I am I'm involved with the Women's Budget Group with her. I would say uh, that my talk is not about economics. My talk is about demography, first of all. And it's a particular approach to economics which filtered into demography. And it filtered in without any theory at all. If it filtered in with political economy, I would have been thrilled. If it filtered in with even neoclassical theory, which was what I was trying to say, even if you took neoclassical theory, which I admit I hated, you'd probably be doing better work in demography because you'd have some theory which would guide your statistics. Does that clarify it? Good. I'm sorry it wasn't clear in the first place. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. It's <laughs> um, I wasn't 100% sure I understood your question. Sorry. No. Um, but but part, of, part of what um, the, the neoclassical economics model is about is utility maximization. So when you are getting to the models that I put up, it would be a utility maximization model and happiness would be the de- dependent variable. Um, there's a lot of people now that are saying that we should make happiness an outcome that we target in policy. And uh, uh, we cover that in, in one of my courses, lucky you who are going to take 414. Um, but it, it is a utility-based model that guides where you get from the theoretical model in neoclassical economics to the, the structural model, then down to a reduced form. The problem is that what ended up in demography was the reduced form without the model on top of it a lot of times. <coughs> okay, now let me take a second round of questions. Um, we have two here, Nyla and then Claire. Thank you. Wait, wait for the mic, Nyla, um, Can you just say who you are for the okay. record? All right, Nyla Kabir, Gender Institute. Uh, this is half a question and half a comment. Uh, so I'll have an interrogatory sort of note to try and make it a question. <laughs> can you all hear? Okay. As you, can you hear? Okay. Uh, I did briefly uh, flirt with demography. <laughs> and, <laughs> and economics. And economics. Yes, I do. You, you and I have a lot in common, no? Disciplines, yes. Uh, and the, the impression I took away from that brief encounter with demography was it was indeed a set of tools, but that anyone who had any common sense would take those tools and then draw on other disciplines from their, for their theory. So I often found myself uh, in the company of people I would call economic uh, demographic anthropologists or sociological demographers and so on. So what happened to those kinds of people? Did they never make any 
inroads into core demography. I, I sh uh, wait, sorry, sorry, I just always want to answer right away. Yes. Um, so Claire, thank you. Thanks, Wendy. Um, so, as you know, I know nothing about demography, <laughs> and in, in an interdisciplinary arena that we both work within, you know, you could say that I come at this from kind of the complete other end of uh, uh, humanities influence, social sciences, feminist and queer theory. But as you were talking, uh, it sounded to me like you were kind of coming to uh, the position where you would... Uh, reasonably re-identify yourself as a feminist and queer theorist rather than as a demographer. And I guess I'm left with the question of um, why do you stay in demography? Um, <laughs> what, is, what is it doing for you? Uh, I, I now have a discipline to flirt with, Nyla. Um, yeah. um, I, I, there are a lot of really interesting demographers, and part of why I got into demography, and this might touch on your question as well, Claire, is I ended up working with David Kurtzer when I was a PhD student. I, I found anthropological demographers. I think there's a lot of really interesting people in demography, and actually a lot of them have been presidents of the Population Association of America. A lot of people have criticized the state of the field. They just haven't figured out what to do about it. Um, and there's a lot of money... I, and I get really concerned when I see money coming into LSE and research centers getting set up with all of this autonomy because I think that's part of what happened. But I think there's a lot of really good people in demography. I think there is a lot of support for collecting good data. I think there's really fantastic historical projects going on. I think figuring out things like... Um, population trends and figuring out how they're related to the sustainability of, of state funding and figuring out how to, how to cope with differences and change and, and understanding change is, change is really important. Um, I think it, it, it is an interdisciplinary discipline and I think it also is something that, that is inherently going to talk to policymakers. So if I left... I would not be a voice that I think policymakers need to hear. And um, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of demographers, and I argue with them, but I, I think, you know, that's good. And, and I, I, I only talked about one of my PhD students. I should have talked about all of them. Um, Joanna, who I, I won't shame by saying, no, I will. She's the one that said demography is fascinating. Um, did a wonderful, in the end, did a wonderful qualitative study, which I think could inform the way people collect data. And if I abandon it, I, I leave it to the people that are willing to sell out. Okay, so more questions? Yes, we have, have one there and then behind. Thank you. Sorry, it's not like a question, it's more of I'm worried a bit. Uh, I'm Florence. I'm pursuing an MSc in population and development. And I was reading up on Professor Dyson and what he teaches, and it seems like you're totally against whatever he says. Because no, when you talk of demographic transition, as in how it happens, like death rates go down, then fertility goes down, then population growth. So I'm a bit worried. <laughs> anyway, I'm just concerned. Yeah. And um, the 
person behind you. I think it works. Um, mine's sort of a pragmatic question. I was just wondering uh, whether you thought, it, that, thought that there needed to be new theories or whether there were existing bodies of feminist theory that could be happily applied to demography or whether you thought there should be a specific feminist demographer <laughs> sort of born of this. Um, I, first yeah, first question. I, Tim Dyson's great. Um, I, I think he's a wonderful teacher, and I think that you'll learn a lot. Um, I think if you took my course, you'd get a slightly different perspective on the same topics. But um, you, you have to decide how you want to see the world and, and how it works for you. Um, some people are pretty happy with mainstream demography, and that's great. Um, I have my problems with it, and I think... Um, when demographers start talking to policymakers, I want to challenge them when I think they're doing stuff wrong. You're at LSE, you'll develop critical skills and you'll figure out where you stand. And hopefully, um, if you don't engage, you're not going to affect any change at all. So see it as an intellectual journey, would be my advice. Um, I, I didn't want to sort of turn it into a lecture, and I knew there was going to be a range of people here, but a lot of the things that I was talking about, um, like the, the white solipsism, the issues of categorization, the, the concerns about categorization, are, are theories that are out there. Um, and I think, in some ways, what really troubles me is that uh, a lot, and this goes back to Claire's question, I think a lot of times the insights from those theories seem to be seen as almost in opposition to what we do. And ontologically, I, I guess on some level they are. But the insights that come out of them can still be used to critique what you do. Um, I, I, I think you can take the insights and the learning and actually identify things that, that you can take forward. So I think there are a lot of theories you can draw from that are out there already. Um, some people might be uncomfortable with my saying that, but I, I'm not. I think anything that, that gives you insights into what you're doing is a good thing, and that's why I like interdisciplinarity. When you talk to somebody who sees the world differently from you, you start noticing the things you take for granted, your knee-jerk responses and all of that. But I also think if you do that and then you start questioning what you do and you describe things, that's the first step towards just figuring out what you want to theorize. If you haven't actually pictured the problem in the first place, your theories might actually not be reflecting um, anything but your own uh, perspective, which I think a lot of demographers have shown is wrong, like Hainel. Um, so another round of questions. We have a question there. And OK, so I, I have one in my mind. Oh, no, that was a scratch of head. Right, thank you. Um, OK, so uh, uh, Anya? Thank you, Wendy. I always learn much from your uh, lectures and interventions, and I have today as well. Um, I'm Anya Plomin. I'm based at the Gender Institute. Um, I am puzzled by one thing, and maybe you could uh, elaborate. I'm interested in the uh, policies uh, impact, uh, academia, uh, practice, connections. And what I am puzzled is the origins which you specified of demography, particularly in the US, being quite political and activist. And then we have this outcome of deflecting uh, politically important questions but not paying attention to um, the critical theories that, that guide our politics and activism. What happened in this kind of Nottingstein-style flip there where 
where it seems that it's no longer um, activist political? So do you want to answer yeah, that one? That's a big that? question. Mm -hmm. um, th this is, having read around other people's interpretation, this isn't mine, because um, I'm actually not that old. Uh, although when I was at Princeton, we, uh, we had a lot of people that I read about in some demography histories kind of approaching retirement. So I would read books and go, oh, my God, that was you. Um, the, the politics is kind of interesting because basically demography is a young discipline. It moved into universities, and it wanted to establish itself within academia but it was getting its funding and its independence from foundations. So it ended up doing what Susan uh, Grinnell calls um, boundary demarking. So by presenting itself as the most scientific of the social sciences, it deflected criticism. Uh, but it was still beholden to funders, and it, it was always kind of negotiating those two things. Um, I, I was going to have a slide at the end about all the things that I'm kind of concerned about given the history of demography and I think, you know, foundational money coming into universities and setting up independent research centers worries me. Uh, the need and pressure on academics for all of their research to have impact worries me. There's a lot of things that I see in the history that I think if you looked at, see currently that if you looked at at what happened with people who really were interest, interested in doing good in the world. Just trying to negotiate those two things and, and not having the reflective tools to do it and having circumstances where nobody's made you stop and think about what you're doing. I mean, I, I can't get in Nutstein's head. I don't know how sincerely he really thought he got it wrong. But the interesting thing is because he'd never really explicitly put things so clearly, nobody really called him on it. And it was a Cold War climate, and maybe you know, a lot of people who could have called him on it were scared. I, 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 one thing I would say is I, 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 I wasn't trying to slate anybody. I'm sorry if I seemed like I was. Um, <clears throat> what happened with demographers actually happened in a lot of other disciplines as well. What troubles me sometimes is that I don't think we've actually really spent a whole lot of time looking at the history and trying to learn from it. I think we've relied on people from outside to write books about the history and often got cross with them as a consequence. Does that answer your question? I, I would actually like to tie you down more specifically, <laughs> Wendy, oh, great. because... I've learned that I was very persuaded by your argument. I am, uh, have learned that one needs to be context-specific. Well, I think I kind of knew that, but, um, I mean, it's very helpful to have it reminded. I'm also very wary about solipsism. Um, but I want to have some answers to my questions. Um, so do I. Uh, I, mean, I mean to questions that concern me from your position. Uh, and that is, let's take something like the ageing problem in Europe or the problem of low fertility in Europe, because I very much want the European welfare state to continue, albeit in a modified form. Um, so what I want to know then is what specific theories would you suggest to enable a richer analysis that might enable one to um, explain 
these existing population problems as they're seen and what one might do about it. And just as a, a rider to that, I mean, what do you do if the outcome of a policy prescription from a method that you are not in favour of is actually one that you would support politically? I'm thinking that, well, we all need to be like Sweden. Well, I think mm. that might be quite a good idea, mm. and um, especially with respect to childcare and mm. elder care policies. So um, even if it's wrong theory, if it leads to good outcomes, what does one do about it? <laughs> you see what I mean? I, Am I, I being clear? I, no, I know exactly what you mean. Um, and a lot of people say instrumentalist arguments are what are going to get you traction politically, and perhaps that's what demographers were doing as well because people were sincerely concerned about massive population growth. I find it really kind of bizarre that we live in a world where people are still concerned about high fertility in some parts of it and low fertility here. Um, and I think the indicators that people use to look at and assess aging populations, it's true populations are aging. Um, and in some countries, fertility is enormously low. But... Um, bringing in one policy from Sweden, which somebody has identified as relevant, is not going to do a whole lot if you dump it in Korea. You need to look at the whole constellation of policies. You need to understand. Um, and also, it's not the responsibility of people to make babies for the state. They, they can. I mean, the, the thing that. The thing that demographers and, and European politicians have latched onto is quantitative evidence that says most people report that they would that the ideal number of children, which I've already revealed I'm a bit skeptical about, is two. So European policymakers say, well, we're, we're just trying to figure out how to help people have the kids they want. Um, what I'd like them to do then is look at holistically uh, the, the context in which fertility is low, trying to figure out the magic bullet, and I think that's what policymakers do. You know, we'll save the world with microcredit. Conditional cash transfers are the way forward. Um, Swedish parental leave, that's where it's at. Uh, isn't going to work when you put it in a vastly different context. And I, actually, it might not work at all. Um, in the larger version of this paper, I kind of pointed out that if you... Um, took certain Swedish policies and dropped them in the British context, which is very unequal, has a stratified labor market, very different incentives, you might actually get negative effects on fertility. But by not looking at the context and not deconstructing it, and analyses that just say, oh, look, the UK and Sweden have the same TFR, total fertility rate, they, you know, they must be the same, loses a lot of important detail, which actually is important for policymakers. And if you get your Swedish welfare state and then fertility doesn't change, you might lose it and you might not get heard next time. Okay. All right. You, you still might get the Swedish welfare state, but anyway, Temporarily. We'll, we'll, we'll take that. I think probably we will take that argument uh, later, but we do have some other questions that people want to ask before we um, go and have a drink. Yes, we have a question over there. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, your your comments on the our uh, misoccupations on the economic uh, occupations in demography is very inspirational for me because uh, I major in the international political economy. It's a interdiscipline, and there's a difference between the American school and the English school. The American school tends to use economic models to simplify complex issues into measurable var variables, but the British uh, the British school is 
more eclectic and it draw it draw uh, methodologies and experience from other disciplines. So that, that that's why I come here to study this uh, discipline. So my question is that uh, you said that demography needs new theory. And I think that situation is also the same with international political economy. It, it also needs its own theory. But, so uh, what's your suggestions to, um, for us to avoid the two tendencies? One is to um, focus only on one or two trees uh, but, without, uh, but uh, neglect the whole forest. And the other tendency is to, uh, you know, to get lost in the forest uh, without finding a way out. So what's your suggestions for the scholars and students in, I, I mean, I think that's very transferable to other disciplines. Thank you. Well, hold on, there's another one over there. So let's take that second one uh, first. Thank you. Uh, Anne Humbert, uh, Cranfield University. Uh, I'm very, very interested in your talk today because I am a gender statistician. So I spend my life having to deconstruct gender and the binary, and yet having to use statistics to uh, actually empirically measure that. So what I was really thinking about when I was listening to you is I was thinking about all the reports that are on the news at the moment and the fact that when we talk about TF4, sorry, total fertility rate, when we talk about the aging population, we're having a very, very narrow-minded subtext in this because when I actually think about what's happening with migration, when I actually think about what, uh, because let's be realistic, the TF4 is very, very... Uh, prone to change depending on whether, well, depending on those migration uh, policies or just what you decide to do with this. So, and it's just the fact that, again, this is my statistical hat in this, just what, how much migration is not valued within the statistical system and within how we choose to measure it. And I have a lot of experience working with Eurostat. And when I try to measure migration, I cannot because they refuse to measure in the European system. They refuse to measure ethnicity. It just apparently doesn't exist because of the French system. Just we cannot measure it. Just like, no, 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 it's illegal. Just, and so all we can measure is citizenship. So I just wanted to just throw this out there and maybe get your reflections, Wendy, on how this is all constructed and how we can actually use demography in the context of what's happening today with the Syrian and, and other uh, refugee crisis. Sorry, big question. Yeah, two big questions. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I, I think really I, I can't give you a huge amount of advice, but I guess just my blanket advice, and you, you seem to have chosen where you want to be strategically and, and with a lot of um, reflection already. But I guess, in my mind, the best thing you can do is really expose yourself to lots of disciplinary perspectives. Uh, when I look back my first year as an econ student, I couldn't believe how enculturated I was um, to the point that, you know, you made jokes using the economic terminology uh, that, that you'd been taught. We were really tedious to go to lunch with. Um, <laughs> but you, you, you end up then taking for granted things and that the obvious thing that you need to do is. And one of the things that I find really interesting working on journals, from economics journals, is that even a paper that comes in which isn't trying to identify a causal effect, it's like somebody reads it and assumes it must be a causal question and they misread the paper. 
getting different perspectives from the world. Join, uh, join up with the um, Rethinking Economics group. They're a great group, and they have raised a lot of really interesting challenges to the way economics is taught in the UK and worldwide now. They're setting up a website. Um, and one of the things that they're doing, which um, I think is great, is saying, you know, they used to teach marks to economic students. Why aren't we getting marks? The, uh, it, the funny thing is they're not asking for anything new. I'm saying demography needs new because it was young. But what's happened is they've ended up in a lot of places in the UK, and I take your point that this isn't everybody, but in a lot of departments, people just aren't getting exposed to a range of views. They're getting exposed to a very particular view, and that particular view isn't helping them understand the world, and that was what they thought they were there for. Uh, so getting other voices and, and getting them to challenge you, I think, is important. Um, I don't know how to deal with European data. Um, you use it all the time. I know. But, but you talk to them about changing it, and they're like, oh, we can't change trends, even if we think it's a bad variable. And the ethnicity thing is, you, you kind of understand where it's coming from, but yikes. Um, one of the things that worries me about the way demographers approach research, and this is why I think Joanna's study is really interesting, is we've developed, we've imported these very watered-down economics models so people migrate because they look at the wages where they live and they look at the wages elsewhere and they decide the cost of migration and they migrate. And that model is implicitly male. It's all about how much you earn in your job. Um, and fertility is all about women. Demographers just never did male fertility very well. And I find it really funny. They're really cavalier about uh, surveys with 57% response rates. But you try and look at men and they're like, oh! Not all fathers have answered the questionnaire. You can't possibly do that. Um, but what you end up with is one theory that's all about women and one theory that's all about men. And what Joanna's work shows, I think, is that actually people make their migration and fertility decisions together. Wow. Um, so if you want to understand fertility, you have to understand migration, and that would probably be my argument. Okay, thank you. On that note, I think I'll draw proceedings um, to a close and to remind you of the reception uh, that we will be holding in the fourth floor. Uh, there's a restaurant there where we hold a just drinks, so I'm afraid, drinks and nibbles uh, reception. Um, and also to draw your attention to forthcoming events in the Gender Institute Public Lectures. We have two in the near, near future, one on the 2nd of October, one on the 13th of October, um, the first is a special event uh, hosted uh, by ourselves, the Gender Institute, but also with the Gender and Development Journal, uh, which is about analyzing uh, inequalities but thinking about uh, policy and practice. And then the second one is a launch of, our, of the report that people in the Gender Institute, the law department, and government departments have been working on uh, which is a commission on gender inequality and power, and we'll be launching our report on confronting gender inequality on the 13th of October. So let's look forward to those events and seeing you there. But in the meantime, let's thank Wendy uh, Siegel very much for tonight's lecture.